Last week we looked at the context for prayer. We need to pray to our Father in secret, trusting that we don't need to use many words and that God knows our prayers before we ask him. He simply loves us and loves to hear our voice. Today we move on to the content of prayer. And I've divided the Lord's Prayer into five parts. The honour of God, the will of God, our daily needs, forgiveness, and deliverance from evil. Firstly then, the honour of God. Verse 9. This then is how you should pray, says Jesus. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We're so familiar with these words that sometimes we miss the force of them. For Jesus to teach us to call God Father was and is revolutionary. Abba, which has nothing to do with Swedish pop music and everything to do with a close relationship with God. It wouldn't be right to translate this as Daddy since Abba conveys a sense of respect for our Father, and not just intimacy. But nonetheless, Jews in Jesus' day would never have used this term for God. It's a wonderful privilege to call God Father, that is, to know him in a close, loving relationship. The author Michael Green wrote, Only Jesus fully understands God the Father. Great people have discovered and taught many true and noble things about God. Nobody has known him with the intimacy of Jesus, who could call him Abba. When Mahatma Gandhi was dying, one of his relatives came to him and asked, Babaki, you've been looking for God all your life. Have you found him yet? No, was the reply. I'm still looking. The humility, the earnestness, the sheer goodness of a great teacher like Gandhi shines through. But it stands in the most stark contrast with Jesus' claim. No one knows the Father except the Son. It's an amazing privilege to know God as our Father, in heaven. A Muslim wouldn't dream of addressing God in this way. So God is our Father. We can know him personally in a close, loving relationship. And when we know him like this, the great cry of our heart is, hallowed be your name. The name of God should be held in the greatest reverence. Instead, God has become a swear word. Hallowed means to be treated with the greatest, the highest honour and set apart as holy. We don't see that much in our culture, do we? God is used as a swear word. God is laughed at as a bit of a joke. I've only written a complaint to the BBC 
on a handful of occasions, but one of them was when Rowan Atkinson, dressed up as Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, and laughed at God and Jesus, making smutty jokes about them. Our prayer is that our Father in heaven should be hallowed, his name treated with the greatest of respect. So the honour of God. Secondly, we should pray for the will of God. After praying for God's name to be honoured, we should pray for God's will to be done. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? Well, it's carried out perfectly, without qualification. What God says goes. The angels of heaven obey him perfectly. The ransomed souls in heaven delight to do God's will. Whereas here on earth, humanity is in open revolt against the will of God. Even those of us who are Christians disobey God on a regular basis. We can't help ourselves. We're sinful people. We break God's law. But because we've been saved, because we've been forgiven and belong to God, the great cry of our heart now is that God's will should be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for an end to the rebellion, especially the rebellion of our own hearts. We long for an end to the war against God. We long for Satan to be destroyed and for all his demons to be confined to hell. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the wonderful truth is that one day Jesus will return Satan will be confined to the lake of fire, along with all his followers. And there'll be perfect unity on the earth, under the reign of Christ. On that day, God's will shall indeed be done on earth, as it is in heaven. God's kingdom will be perfectly established There'll be no opposition to King Jesus. And every time we obey God, every time we do the right thing, we foreshadow that great and glorious day. I'm old enough that when I was in school, the Lord's Prayer was said every morning in assembly. The problem with this was that most people in the room didn't know God as Father and therefore they had no understanding of what they were saying. And they had no desire for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You can only pray like this when you're in relationship with God through Jesus. But once you are, 
This all makes perfect sense. So when we pray, we should pray for the honour of God, the will of God. And thirdly, our daily needs. Again, it's astounding to me that the Lord of the universe should be interested in our daily needs. But Jesus is very clear, verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. We should ask God for our most basic of needs. The problem for affluent people is that we can forget that we are reliant on God for our daily needs. A few years ago, a woman became a Christian and started coming to church. She also started praying with her children at bedtime. Her husband, who's an atheist, said to her, What on earth are you doing? The woman replied, I'm just teaching the children to be thankful. But they should be thankful to me, her husband said. That's the great problem of our society. We think we are the highest power. And therefore there's no one greater than us to be thanked. But if you lose your job or come under some other financial pressure, you soon rediscover what it means to pray, give us today our daily bread. Saying grace at mealtimes becomes much more significant when you're actually short of money. Jesus wants us to rely on God for our most basic needs. Give us today our daily bread. Notice this prayer is daily. Every morning we should come to God and seek him for the things we need. I think this includes asking God for daily health and strength to serve him. It means asking God to help with our work. Whatever it is that we need on a daily basis, we should ask God for it. Fourthly, we should ask God for forgiveness. Verse 12, and forgive us our debts. This means our debts toward God, the things we owe God. What do we owe him? We owe him the obedience of our lives. And the truth is, we disobey him in thought and word and deed. Our thought life is probably the biggest problem for most of us. One very famous preacher, one very highly respected preacher, said, If you could see into my heart, you'd spit in my eye. And that's the truth of the matter. I, we, disobey God. The Bible says we deserve hell. That's the debt we owe God. We should be going to hell. Instead, we're going to heaven. Fundamentally, 
We've been forgiven. We're accepted by God. We are going to heaven. But we still owe him debt on a, on a daily basis. We still need forgiveness for our thought life and sometimes even for our actions. The wonderful good news is that we can come to God day by day and ask for his forgiveness. And it's never denied. Why is forgiveness never denied? It's because Jesus has paid our debt. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment. He paid the price for all our sin. Jesus exhausted all of God's righteous anger at our sin. Therefore, there's no more for us to pay. We can indeed pray with confidence, forgive us our debts, and know that we are forgiven. However, something goes with that. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. If I want to be forgiven by God, I must forgive those who are in my debt, those who've sinned against me. It was five days before Christmas when a stranger approached 10-year-old Christopher Carrier, claiming to be a friend of his father. I want to buy him a gift, and I need your help, said the stranger. Eager to do something good for his father, Chris climbed aboard a motorhome, parked up the street. The driver took Chris to a remote field where he stabbed and shot him. Chris miraculously survived his injuries, though he was left blind in his left eye. Because he was unable to identify his attacker, police could not make an arrest. For a long time, young Chris remained frightened, despite police protection. Finally, Chris trusted Jesus Christ as his saviour. This turning point came three years after the attack. At age 15, Chris shared his story for the first time. He eventually decided to pursue full-time ministry, helping others to find the peace he discovered in Christ. In 1996, a detective told Chris over the phone that a man had confessed to the crime that had cost him his left eye. The man's name was David McAllister. Chris now visited this feeble and blind man living in a nursing home. The strong young man, Chris remembered, was now a broken, humbled 77-year-old. Chris le learned from the detective 
some of the background of what had happened years ago. McAllister had been hired by Chris's father to work as a nurse for an elderly uncle. Chris's dad had caught McAllister drinking on the job and had fired him. The senseless attack on Chris had been motivated by revenge. As Chris now talked to the old man, at first, McAllister denied knowing anything about the kidnapping. As Chris revealed more about himself, the old man softened and eventually apologised. Chris said, I told him, what you meant for evil, God has turned into a wonderful blessing. Chris told his attacker how God had allowed his wounds to become open doors to share the good news of Christ. Chris went home and told his wife and children about meeting the man who had tried to kill him. The entire family began almost daily visits to McAllister's nursing home. During one Sunday afternoon visit, Chris popped the most important question he'd yet to ask McAllister. Do you want to know the Lord? McAllister said yes. Both men basked in forgiveness as McAllister gave his heart to Christ. A few days later, McAllister died peacefully in his sleep. Carrier says, it's not a story of regret, but of redemption. I saw the Lord give that man back his life and so much more. Chris said, I can't wait to see him again someday in heaven. That's an amazing story of forgiveness. We shouldn't be trite about this. It's no small thing to forgive, especially when we've been greatly wronged. It's no small thing at all. It's a very great thing. And it won't happen overnight. Some of you may have read the story of Corrie ten Boom, who was in a concentration camp in the Second World War. Her father and sister died there. Some years later, she met one of the camp officers and she had to make a decision whether she would forgive him and shake his hand. It was very difficult for her, but she managed it. Also, it's very difficult to forgive when there's no repentance. The basis on which God forgives is that we humble ourselves, admit our sin, and ask for forgiveness. But supposing those who wrong us do repent, Jesus says we should forgive them. Look down at verse 14. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So that's the deal. 
we forgive others if we expect God to forgive us. I realize this might be easy for me to say and very difficult for others to do, especially if you've been greatly harmed or abused. We should pray about it. Maybe tell the Lord that we would like to be able to forgive, even if at present we're unable to do so. But maybe the sins you're struggling to forgive are not that serious. Just the run-of-the-mill, everyday grievances we feel towards one another. This is how we should pray. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And fifthly, we pray for deliverance from evil. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God, of course, never tempts anyone to sin. It's Satan who does this. So when we pray this prayer, we're saying, deliver us, Lord, from the evil one, from his temptations to sin. Satan's temptation is so duplicitous. We feel attracted to a certain way of behaving. And all the time, Satan is saying, go on. It's not that serious. Everyone is doing it. It won't do any harm. Nobody else will know about it. And then, as soon as we've committed the sin, Satan says, and you call yourself a Christian, how could you do such a terrible thing? You're a complete failure as a Christian. Can you relate to that? I certainly can. And wonderfully, there's forgiveness for every sin. But as a matter of urgency, we should be praying every morning before we face the day. Heavenly Father, Please don't allow me to fall into temptation and then into sin today. The story is often told of the wealthy man who was looking for a chauffeur for his car. And he took the candidates for the job to a high cliff top. And he said to the candidates, I want you to drive as near as you can to the edge of the cliff without falling over the edge. The first driver drove within a few feet of the cliff edge. The second driver drove even closer to the edge. The third driver steered the car 20 or 30 feet from the cliff edge. He was the candidate the man chose to be his chauffeur, the man who wouldn't take any chances. And that's how we are with temptation sometimes. We go as near as we can 
to the cliff edge. We go as near as we can to sin without falling into it, when what we should be doing is moving as far away from sin as we possibly can. We should seek to be the answer to our own prayer and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Get right away from temptation. Don't go there if you know you'll be tempted. Don't put yourself in a vulnerable position. So what should we pray for? What should be the content of our prayer? The honour of God? The will of God? Our daily needs? Forgiveness? Deliverance from evil? Let's spend a few minutes now praying on our tables using some of these teachings from Jesus, praying for God's name to be hallowed, for his will to be done in our circumstances, for the provision of daily needs. Pray for forgiveness, perhaps. Pray for deliverance from evil. So let's spend a few minutes in prayer, and then Becca will come back.